thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue our study of the book of Exodus. For those of you who have been reading the chapters, you know we made a significant jump. We're doing 32, 33, 34 tonight. And there is a reason for that. Um, The chapters sandwiched between 19 and 31 really are about the tabernacle. And we're going to treat them as a unit. And what is most interesting is that when you make that jump, you see the continuation of the the way God is dealing with Israel as they wander through the desert. And you see, in fact, how uh, they respond to God. This is a very powerful, uh, powerful uh, three chapters, and it's good to treat them as a unit. So what we're going to try and do, there's a lot of material. If you haven't read them, I really recommend you do. They're very powerful chapters. We're going to try and cover four, four points, and we'll see how well we, we fare. The first one is obviously the making of the golden calf. The second is the Levitical order that is going to be one of the consequences come out of this, uh, the making of the golden calf. The third is the withdrawal of the divine presence, how God withdraws, pulls away from, from his people. And the fourth is the finding favor, Moses finding favor with God. So again, the first is the making of the golden calf. The second is the Levitical order. The third is the withdrawal of God from his people. And the fourth is the finding favor with God. And at at a high level, as we survey these three chapters together, uh, you could, it is a very good set of chapters to, apply a moral reading to, moral tropological. The four senses of Scripture, and you've heard me mention this many times, are the literal sense, which is mostly the one that we follow here. We try to understand Scripture in its context. What did the original author mean when he penned Scripture? Building on this uh, uh, literal sense, there are three spiritual senses. The analogical sense, the sense by analogy, that is the sense through which we find Christ in Scripture, and we do some of that. Uh, last time, for instance, when we spoke of the tree in the water that turned the, water, uh, the, the, the bitter water into sweet water, that tree is a sign or symbol of the cross. Manna is a sign or symbol of the Eucharist. So we are applying a spiritual reading to Scripture to help us find Christ. The third sense is the anagogical sense, 
which is, I'm sorry, the anagogical sense is a sense in which we find Christ. The analogical sense is a sense in which we find the church. So, for instance, the Israelite are a symbol of the church, the church pilgrim on earth. The, uh, the Sea of Reed or the Red Sea is a symbol of Mary, uh, through whom... Uh, uh, through whom Christ the Savior is born, through whom we're all baptized, in whom the evil one, Satan, dies. And so on and so forth. These three uh, spiritual senses, the, the sense in which we find Christ, the sense in which we find the church, and the third, obviously, the, science, the, science, the sense in which we find ourselves, personally. Uh, most of the time, unfortunately, when we read scriptures these days, due to the influence of the Protestant churches, we hop straight out to the moral sense. We're trying to see what God is telling me in Scripture. And the problem with that is that unless we understand the literal sense, we can get Scripture to say anything. And therefore, we will misinterpret Scripture. And I have a perfect story for this. I mean, I've told you this before. Uh, my daughter, Kateri, at the time was six, and she was sitting talking to a friend of her, Tia, about the fish, goldfish that we had that died. And Kateri told Tia, matter-of-factly, they were having breakfast, yeah, our fish died, and, but, you know, we didn't bury it or anything. We just, we just threw it in a to- toilet. Because, you know, animals don't go to heaven, which is a true statement. Animals don't go to heaven. And then Kateri proceeded to add, except the birds. And Tia, matter-of-factly, said, oh, why? And Kateri answered, because the Holy Spirit is a bird. So there are birds in heaven. And Tia said, oh, all right. Hence, the two little girls had begun their own, their own um, religion. <laughs> religion of the bird. Right? It's cute, but many of us, when we read it morally, when we read the scripture and try to understand what it means to me today, we can take it in different ways. So, for instance, vegetarians may read the passage, the famous passage of Isaiah. If you were in Latin rite Mass on Sunday, you would have heard that passage where it speaks of the lion sleeping next to the lamb, etc., etc. And I would take that to mean that, in, in, that heaven is all about vegetarians, right? It's about the lion not eating meat and that sort of stuff, which has absolutely nothing to do with what Isaiah is trying to say. And on and on it goes. So, however, having said that, today these three chapters are very, very good. They're, they're, they're particularly good if you want to use scripture as means for an examination of conscience, especially if you want to go to confession as Christmas approaches in preparation of Christmas. If you want to go to confession and you haven't been, I strongly recommend you do You do so. And it's a very good reflection because what happens with the people of Israel happens with us on a personal basis, the same thing. They had their, old, their golden calf. We can have our own golden calf. How does God respond to that? They had Moses interceding on their behalf. We have the saints, the angels, and the church interceding on our behalf. How does God respond? And it is a very good uh, three chapters to see how God reacts. Because once you understand that, you will understand the depth of the gift of free will and to what degree God respects that. A lot depends on you. A lot depends on you more than you think. That's what we're going to see tonight. So the making of the golden calf, chapter 32, verse 1 through 6. In this section, we see 
Moses, so let's put it in context. Moses was asked by God to go up the mountain. So he does. And he spends 40 days in seclusion. 40 days. 40 days up the mountain. 40 days have not come to an end. The people down there grow impatient. Impatient. Uh, The vice of impatience is not a primary vice. Not like pride, for instance, right? Or jealousy. But it is a vice that penetrates through our moral fabric the way acid can eat through metal. When you are impatient, you will make decisions which are not prudent. And as a result, you will put yourself in danger. You will put yourself in danger because you're impatient. Ask yourself in your own lives whether you're cultivating patience or impatience. I'm going to give you some pointers. Those pointers you're not necessarily going to recognize as having anything to do with impatience, but they do. The best way to teach your children impatience, the best way to teach your children impatience is to let them sit down and watch Sesame Street. You want your children to learn impatience, let them watch Sesame Street. Because this is exactly what they're going to learn. This program is structured so that the attention span on any given topic is about 30 seconds. In 30 seconds, a topic is introduced and brought to completion. It is teaching children impatience. You want to teach your children impatience, let them prepare their meal through microwaves. Don't cook at home. You want to teach children impatience, let them listen to rock and roll, play games. You need to realize, all of us need to realize, that nothing in the arts is neutral. There is no neutrality in art, be it gaming, be it painting, be it movies, being music. There is no neutrality. It isn't that you listen to art and it doesn't do anything to you. Art is a profoundly moral activity, a profoundly moral activity. You form the morality of the youth with art more so than anything put together. So you have to realize that it is simply enough to be impatient. I mean, in order to lose heaven, all you have to do is be impatient. And it's enough. You don't need anything else. Just impatience. Case in point. 40 days. Not even 40 days. They could not wait 40 days. They were not saying, we don't believe in God. They were not saying, God doesn't exist. You understand? Their sin, the sin of the golden calf, is not theological. In its foundation, it is not a theological sin. It's a moral sin, based upon impatience. Now, we need to understand why they're impatient. There there are profound root causes to this. We'll get to it in a minute. But that's the first one I want to make to you. They are impatient. Now, they ask Aaron, and they tell him, we don't know that Moses, this, this man Moses, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know who he is. Make us gods. Plural. 
Those of you who read this passage must have wondered why they say make us gods. Why do you think they say make us gods? So what are they really saying? Send us back. Actually, they've never left. You see? They've never left. So today there are many, many amongst um, um, immigrant communities who've never left their home country. They're physically here, but they've never left. And I've told you about that, right? They've never left. So what are they asking for? Make us gods. Now, they go to Aaron, and, and they say to Aaron. Who's Aaron? The high priest. The high priest. So what does he say? Shame on you? Tisk, tisk, tisk. No. Bring me all the earrings, right? All the gold. And he basically officiated over the creation of a golden calf. And he says, this is your gods. Now, and then he built an altar and they offered sacrifice. Yes. Some of your Bibles may say a god. The literal, the literal translation would say gods. So that's why I do recommend the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, this blue Bible, if you want to do Bible study, that's the Bible you want. It's a drier reading, not as pleasant, because they tend to stick to the actual text. So, again, that's a perfect example of a smoothing over, making it nicer, because most of the time, either we don't understand the meaning, so we try to sort of fit one that kind of worked, or um, we try to interpret. Okay? It's actually make us gods, not make us a god. They asked for many, he made one. But which one? That's the key. Which one? Golden calf. Why golden calf? Is it, you know, randomly because a calf is easier to make than a giraffe? Or a camel? Why the golden calf? Because of the god Apis. Or Hapis. Alright? The Egyptian god Apis. Now, the Egyptian god Apis was initially god of fertility. And bull, the bull is always represent, in most cultures, a bull represents virility, strength, power, youth, etc. That is why the horn is a sign of power. That is why oftentimes you see the devil represented with horns. The devil is a spirit. He's got no body and much less horns. But the fact that we put horns on his forehead, indicates simply power. In Rome, there's a statue of Moses, and Moses has two horns on his forehead, representing power. The, the, the um, I forgot the technical term. It used to be a tiara, but now the, the, the sort of hat, odd-shaped hat that a bishop wears represents the horns of a bull. It's a stylized version of horns, representing power. So, fundamentally, that is the function of a bull. That's what it represented. Eventually, there is a a transformation of Apis into also the the representation of the god of the dead. So, it is called, he is called the, the, um, there's a specific term that they use to depict him, um, as essentially, so he was also a symbol of Pharaoh, by the way. 
Apis was a symbol of Pharaoh. And, and so in Egypt they had, um, that there are, you know that there are mummified people in Egypt, but what you don't know is that there are very rich sepulchers, tombs for cows, extremely expensive ones, where bulls and cows were buried because they represented this god. And they had specific, um, uh, there was a specific selection that you had to go through to get the right bull to be the representation of the god Hapis. So, for instance, it was required to have a white triangle upon its forehead, a white vulture wing on, uh, on, on its back, a scarab mark under its tongue, a white crescent moon shape on its right flank, and double hairs on its tail. I mean, to what degree men can be gullible is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't invent that stuff even if you wanted to. We are so gullible. We're willing to believe any kind of nonsense and forego the, the use of reason. Forego the use of We are so gullible this way. Those who listen to their horoscopes, those who read the fortune cookies, those who, um, you know, uh, read the coffee thing and see horses and a whole bunch of animals and zoos in there and explain it in 14 different ways. All that is complete nonsense, but all that is also superstition and all that is sinful. If you're doing it, stop. You stop because it's sinful. Right? You're, it's a slap in the face of God. Just don't do any of that stuff. Right? So, um, when they had one of those cows or you know, a bull, his movements were interpreted as prophecies. So if the bull was, you know, I don't know, eating some grass or something, and he moved his head left and then right, that meant something. But he moved his head right and then left, that meant something else. All right? His breath was believed to cure diseases. I mean, you understand the obscuring of reason? To what degree we were willing to obscure our reason? Now, you think they are stupid and we're not. We're actually more stupid than they are. Okay? We are far more gullible than they are. Because... Most of us don't believe in the devil, right? Most of us believe we're completely masters of our own destiny. There's nobody controlling us. We have nobody influences us. And that kind of nonsense. At least they didn't, right? Uh, his presence was believed to bless those around with, vir- with virility. He was given a window in the temple through which he could be seen. And on certain holidays was led through the suite of the city, bedecked with jewelry and flowers. And so, now, the, the, you have to understand that the, cer- the ceremony, the the ceremony around Apis is not what we call a ceremony today. Not about, you know, it's not like a, a procession that we have. All right? Plutarch, who is a, um, an ancient author, um, describes the burial of Apis, who was taken to the necropolis on a raft, and he compares it to the revelry of Bacchus. Bacchus is the Greek god associated with um, the goods of the earth and most associated with wine. And the revelries around his temple, the orgies, he compared to those around Apis. So you basically had orgies. By the way, do you know the origin of the word panic? The origin of the word panic, the root, the root of panic is pan. Pan. And the god Pan is also god of virility. And the liturgies of Pan were so out of this world, the degree, the adrenaline pumping uh, level to which people reach in those things induced panic. That's where the word came from. So, when they say, make us a god, make us gods, they mean this multiple representation all in one 
because he represents Pharaoh, he represents Hapis, he represents uh, Ptah, who was the god of the dead. All of these representations were in this bull. And what they really were after was the party. What they were after was the party. Effectively, they behaved very much like people who are addicts. There's an addiction element. If you read it with a psychological view, and you see and you compare it to descriptions of people who are addicted to something, you'll see that there is an element that is out of control. They just cannot control it. Right? They can't control it. Addicts are incapable of controlling their addiction. They need significant help. Right? And in this case, that's what's happening. They were in a place of high anxiety. They were in a place of high... Um, in a place where their, 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 their passions could not be fed. They've been in the desert for so long, and what they're really longing for is the life before, the life of pleasure. Okay, and that's what they want, and that's what they get. Right? So there is much in the text that connotes this, that supports that, that the dancing was not really dancing, but it was sexual dancing. It was effectively a huge orgy. That's what they got themselves into. Interestingly, as soon as the sacrifice is done and they get into the orgy, Aaron completely disappears in the picture. They used him. They knew they needed a priest. Notice. At least they had some level of religiosity in them to require a priest. They didn't say, let us make a god. They needed a priest to make a god. Once they made the god, they understood they're sacrificing to their god. And they understood in return of that sacrifice, they were getting what they wanted, pleasure. At least they understood what they were getting into. We, on the other hand, get ourselves into these parties thinking we owe nothing to nobody. We don't go before a priest and says, make us a god, and we offer sacrifice, and then we get to the orgy. No, no, no. We just go straight to the orgy. We completely drop this whole aspect of having to offer sacrifice, etc., etc., which makes the devil very, very happy. Because the first thing that the devil wants is to make sure we don't believe in his existence. The devil is not about us worshipping him. That's not what he's trying to do here. That's not his ultimate objective. The devil hates us in ways we can't even imagine. All he wants is for us to go to hell. And if it means that if we don't believe in him, we'll go to hell, he's very happy about it. You understand? So today the devil has a much better way. People are in their own room, they're on the internet, hooked on pornography, and he doesn't want anything more than that. Okay, because that keeps them away from, from God. And if you read about the sexual addiction, so many of it end up in suicide, so many of it end up in complete destruction of families. The effect on children is, is immeasurable, absolutely immeasurable. It's a real tragedy when this happens. And these people need, need a, lot of, a lot of help. And prayer. Okay, so then they are now in the middle of all of this. Notice, it simply started because they just could not wait. Do you think we've done something like that? Could you give me an example where we in the Catholic Church behaved exactly like these people? 1968, the end of Vatican, the Second Vatican Council. The, 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 the church fathers decided that they will not address the question of contraception directly, but ask the Holy Father to deal with it. At the end of the council, 
the Holy Father, 1962, the Council ended in 1968. I don't remember, 62 or 68, something like that. At the end of the Council, the Holy Father set up a commission of 2,000 people to study the question of contraception. It took six years. The commission took six years to do a whole bunch of analysis. What do you think Catholics started to do during the six years? They decided the Holy Father is going to permit it. Priests told their people he's going to allow it. Catholics knew, knew which priest they can go to in confession who would tell them, oh, it's not a problem, you just can do it. And Catholics contracepted in mass. Now, what do you think people contracept for? Why do you think they're contracepting? Now, I'll tell you the noble reason they'll give you. Well, we can't afford bringing a child. You know, it's about making sure that you can afford having a child here. We can't, you know, we can't do those things. They give you the noble answer to justify themselves. The fundamental reason is very simple. The fundamental reason why we contracept is for pleasure. And that's it. Now, I don't mean by pleasure just sexual pleasure. I mean, I want my way, my life, my way. I want what's easy on me. You understand? Not the cross. I don't want the cross. I want easy. That's why we contracept. Now, notice what happened. They were impatient. That's all. They could not wait. Today, we do it again. I'll give you another example. Medjugorje. How many of you met to Medjugorje? Okay. Some did. Some already declare Medjugorje to be a site where Our Lady appeared. The church hasn't spoken. The church didn't say yes. The church didn't say no. The only one who can really speak on these matters is the church. None of us is the magisterium. Are we? But you really have people who are in camps, and they get very adamant about it. Those who absolutely... You know, they get incensed if you say, well, I don't know. Maybe she didn't appear there. And those who get as incensed if you tell them, well, I don't know. Maybe she is appearing there. They're impatient. I didn't say it was wrong. The church didn't say you're going to go and visit. The church simply said, as the priest, the, the, the local bishop said, do not organize pilgrimage as a priest and go there. You can't do that. But the church never said you cannot go. Many people go. Many people actually have very strong experiences of conversion over there. None of which prove that Our Lady is appearing, by the way. And none of which disprove that Our Lady is not appearing. It doesn't work this way. We just have to wait. We're impatient. Now, you want to fight impatience? Do you want to grow impatience? If that's something that you're really keen on doing, there is a wonder, wonderful way. And that starts with fasting. Fasting. Fasting is a wonderful destroyer of impatience. Because when you fast, you, you fast seriously, right? None of those funky things. I'm not going to eat chocolate between two and three, and I'll have only one chewing gum and share another one with my brother. None of that nonsense. You're really fast, right? Midnight to noon, no water, no food. You've got all the dessert, that sort of stuff. And you take it from there. What do you have to do? From midnight to noon. You gotta wait. And fasting allows you, because of the working grace, to grow in patience. It's a wonderful food for your soul. The tools are there, it's up to you to use them. You can't go to the Lord and say, Well, you know, I, I just couldn't, I was too weak. 
and give him excuses. All the tools are right before you. It's up to you to use them. That's what they did. Now, meanwhile, where, where was Moses? Up on the mountain. When the orgy began, when the orgy began, God told Moses, your people, notice, your people, like Bill Cosby says, right? I know my son is in trouble when I get home, and my wife says, your son. Well, he didn't get it from a stranger. This is what God does. Your people, it's not any more my people, it's your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, you, Moses, have sinned greatly. Let me ask this question. Well, did God see them telling Aaron, build us the golden calf? Did he or didn't he? Okay. Couldn't he have on the spot, you know, I don't know, part the earth or appear with a big cloud or even tell Moses immediately, hey, you know what? Let's have this conversation later. You, you need to go down there because they're going to get in trouble. Couldn't he have taken a preventative measure and stopped them? Yeah? He didn't. I'm hoping you're starting to get out of your mind this notion that God is Santa Claus. That everything is hunky-dory. No matter what we do, God loves us, and, which, which is true. But that does not imply, therefore, that we can go to heaven for free. God loves those who are in hell. They're not in hell because He hates them. Do you understand? He could have intervened right away. Why didn't He? Why didn't God intervene right away and tell Moses? Why did He have to wait until they were in massive trouble before telling Moses? Same thing with us. Why is it that he doesn't appear and tell us, just don't contracept? Why does God let us get in trouble? Free will, and what else? Free will, absolutely free will. He's testing our hearts, absolutely. But what else? There's a third element that is very important. Jesus. Yes, teaching, all that. You're kind of getting closer to it. The f- Pardon? Obedience. Obedience, yes, but there is a fundamental, yes. Discipline, yes. All that is true. Yes, all that is true, but there's one... Yes. Okay, okay, what, what, okay you, we can't do it. What does that mean? We can't do it without Him. Yes, which imply what? It implies the following. It doesn't mean that God took off and left these people. You understand? It doesn't mean that God just took off, went to you know, Hawaii for a break, and while He was away from them... They did what they did. I'm trying to tell you that at any moment uh, in time of your life, God is right there next to you. You are never alone. Never alone. He is right there next to you. And you have to trust Him. It's hard. This is not easy. What I'm talking about is not easy. When you're facing hardships, when you're facing a difficulty that seems insurmountable, something you cannot do on your own. Maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you have marital issues. Maybe your brother is doing something crazy and driving you up the wall. Maybe you have family issues. Maybe you're facing something you're just unable to resolve. To say, God is with me on the spot is Tough. But that is precisely what he's asking us to do. Yes. You see, it's true. It is a fully surrender. It is to fully surrender. However, the difficulty for many people, they can't even... Let me put it you this way. Suppose you have the 
the woman whom you love, the most beautiful woman in the world, come and visit you. And all you have to offer her is a garbage can. That's all you got. All you got is a garbage can. Would you then say, I'm going to surrender the garbage can to her? Would you use that language? Probably you wouldn't. No, no, no. That's the point. Many people get to the point where they feel like a garbage can. And the hard thing for them is to imagine or understand how someone like God, who is perfect, almighty, all beautiful, all pure, could love a garbage can. And this is very hard. So that's why, yes, someone who is not facing this crisis can then take it to the next level and say, God, I surrender myself to you. But the notion is, there's something good that I'm surrendering. But for a lot of people, they don't see any good in them. So they, they don't know what to do. A perfect, a perfect intercessor, if you know people who are in, under this dark cloud, if you know people who are really struggling, especially, again, people who are in, in some sort of an addiction or another, the perfect intercessor is St. Peter. No one knows that better than St. Peter. Simon, Simon, I prayed for you, singular, that when you come back, strengthen your brothers. And he knew, he knew, because he betrayed the Lord three times and took an oath that he didn't even know that man. He put himself under a curse. His sin was as grievous as Judas, right? But in, Sa- in Simon, there was something that accepted forgiveness, that said, I am worthy of being forgiven. Not because of who I am, but because God, who is almighty, loves me. I forgot who said this, but oh yeah, it's Father Kurapi. I love that. He said, man in the whole scheme of the universe is like a grain of dust. But God Almighty loved that grain of dust. And you can sit here and ask yourself from now till eternity, why do you love me when I can't love myself? Why did you die for me when I would not die for myself? And the answer isn't in us. The answer is in Him. And you have to therefore contemplate Jesus Christ on the cross to enter into this answer, to penetrate the mystery, to really understand His love, even though it's undeserved. Right? That's why it's really hard to surrender until you see yourself in His eyes. Until you see how you, how He sees you you can, and many people do, look at themselves as utterly black. Nothing in them, a black hole. And for them, very difficult. So that w- they need a recession. They need a recession. They need somebody praying for them to get them out of that hole. Okay? Yes, they've surrendered their free will for the kingdom of God. So absolutely not. It is the highest expression of free will to surrender to God. The highest and the most perfect. You will be out of free will. In fact, your free will will be enhanced because by the power of God, you will be able to do what He intends for you to do. That is to worship Him. Absolutely not. But when you give yourself to Him, He dictates you. But you chose to do so. And He therefore teaches you freedom. This is the paradox. When you try to do it your way, you end up in 
slavery. When you make yourself a slave of God, you're the, 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 you are completely free. Right? He who saves his life will lose it. He who loses it for the sake of the kingdom, not just loses it, for the sake of the kingdom, shall find it. Yes. So, then God tells Moses, and there's this sort of bartering going on. God makes Moses a great proposal. He says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm just going to get rid of all of these people. All of them. They're all gone. And I'm going to start with you, Moses. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. What do you say? God appears to you in your room and says, you know what? This country has gone completely, completely um, out of left field. I mean, it's in a really terrible state. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe the whole United States clean. And I'm going to start with you. You will be the founder of the new United States of America. Think about it for a second. Just meditate on that. You are the founder of the United States. It starts with you. I want you to feel the force of the proposal. This is what he told Moses. He's starting with him. And here's the thing. Saints worry about God, not about themselves. Saints worry about God. They're concerned with God. Because they love God. So Moses says to God, he reminds him of his covenant. You, Lord, swore this covenant, which obviously God knew. Moses, in the process, discovers who he is. Discovers something about himself he may not have known before. The depth of his love for God and for his people. God is helping Moses discover who he is by revealing to him who God is. That's why St. Augustine, with his usual genius and his prayer, says, Lord, let me know myself that I may know Thee. Let me know myself that I may know Thee. Let me fear for myself, let me fear Thee. Let me love Thee. It's a beautiful prayer of St. Augustine. And this is what happens to Moses. He intercedes and God relents. Now, what is Moses there for? What is he to Israel? He's an intercessor. So if you meet friends, Protestant tells you, well, why, you know, why do I have to ask Mary to pray for me, etc., etc., right? Just point them there. And ask them, if Moses did not pray and intercede, what would have happened? What do you think would have happened if Moses said, okay, that's great. Let's just do that, God. What do you think would have happened? You think God was, um, was being facetious? He was just joking when he said that. When he told Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and start clean. You think he was being facetious? No. So if, if Moses said yes, what would have happened? They're gone. And by the way, where are they gone to? Hell. They're not just gone. They're gone somewhere. You understand that? If Moses did not, if he did not intercede, there would be gone because God made the offer to Moses only Moses yeah that's why all the fathers maybe no but well at least some of the the fathers I've read would say that if Mary had said no to the angel 
If Mary had said no, Christ would not have come. There would not have been another chance. Do you understand that? Mary is not a vessel. Had she said no, we would not be here tonight doing Bible study. There would not be a Mass. There would be no saints. There would be no church. So we owe her something that we don't owe anybody else. That is why we have a very special veneration for her, because it is just to say thank you. Yes, absolutely God knows. It doesn't take anything away from free will, meaning God does not use his knowledge as ways to coerce people in doing things. Just as you might know that your child, or maybe you know, if you see a three-year-old toddler walking to the table to grab a piece of chocolate, a piece of chocolate is there, the kid is six feet away. You know he's going to go for the piece of chocolate. You haven't asked him. You're just watching and you know. But you may not take action. Knowledge does not automatically imply action being taken. And likewise with God. The fact that he knows everything does not prevent us from exercising our free will, just as when you know that this kid is going for the, for the chocolate, you decide to let him do it. Yes, absolutely. God has plan B, just as in this case, you already know, uh, prepare a new diaper. Plan B, right? No, no. That's, that's, that is not applicable there. Remember, the plan, it's, it's our choices, right? So, in the case of Our Lady... She's not a replaceable vessel. Mary said, no, I'll go for Susie. And if Susie says, no, I'll go for Linda. And if Linda says, no, no, it doesn't work this way. He prepared the whole people. God did his part. She had to do hers. It does not take away from the fact she had to choose and say yes. And it is a choice that is done in complete freedom. What we say is that Christ would not have come. Now, God may have chose to do something else. But the something else, as you will see, seems to be of lesser value. So, for instance, after the golden calf, what happens? Moses goes down, and he sees what's going on, and he breaks the tablets of the law, and he is telling the people to stop. What do they do? They rebel. When you're taken by something as powerful as this, as an addiction, in the middle of an orgy, and there's this 90-year-old man telling him to stop, usually it doesn't work. You don't say, yes, sir, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Your passions have been inflamed and are out of whack, so you go to the next level, from lust to violence. Right? That's what they do. So as a result, he says, who is for God? And the Levites stand by him, and he says, every man to his brother. By this, he was trying to say, do not be partial. And the Levites go back about cleaning the party, and 3,000 men are killed. So, here you go, plan B. Not as, not as pretty. Hmm? Not only that, the authority of the firstborn is taken away. Up to this point, any firstborn could offer sacrifice. Any firstborn could erect a te- uh, um, a, uh, a, uh, an altar and offer sacrifice to God. He was the priest in his house. Remember the Passover? Take a, a lamb and then offer up the lamb, because every firstborn would offer a lamb. No more, no longer. That's taken away from them. 
they could not serve before God. That's the second thing that happened. The third thing. God removes himself from their presence. He will not speak to them directly, but through an angel. So now look what happens. The people have to go to Moses. Moses goes to an angel. The angel goes to God. Look at all the level of intermediaries you have to go through to have access to God. So plan B, sure, but not as good. Furthermore, the most important thing is that God relented on account of the covenant that he had established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, he relented from punishing the whole of the community. However, personal sin remained. The personal sin is not forgiven. Do you understand? There is no forgiveness of their personal sin. It remains. If you understand that, you understand the crux of St. Paul's argument with the Judaizers, those who wanted all the Christians, Gentile, to go through circumcision. They wanted them to come back to the Old Testament. Read the letter to the Galatians where he was really upset with them. His point is the whole Old Covenant was made for sin. It does not have life in it. What we receive from the New Covenant is freedom from sin because of the life of grace. The Old Covenant doesn't have any of it. Why do you want to go back to it? That's the genius of St. Paul, to have fully understood the meaning and the works of our Lord. Right? The great theologians, the two great theologians, St. Paul and St. John. St. Peter was mostly more, more pastoral in his, uh, in his approach, although his letters are really difficult. But fundamentally, he was there for pastoral care. The theologians are St. Saint, Saint, Saint Paul and St. John. And what I find really ironic is that St. Paul, being the theologian of the Catholic Church, because the whole edifice of St. Paul is the church. The entire edifice of St. Paul, the church. And the Protestants use him as if he's just a, you know, a Protestant. So, after the Levitical order is established, Moses goes back and entreats God and says, he, he's basically wanting God to lead the people. And there is a very interesting exchange in this chapter 33 between God and Moses, where God would say, your people, and Moses would say, no God, your people. <laughs> Essentially, there is a distancing on God's part from his relationship with the people. No longer are they his people, they have become Moses' people. And what God wants to communicate through that is that they are still around because of you, Moses. You interceded for them. I heeded your voice as intercessor, and they're around, and therefore they are your people. And to make the matter even clearer, they will, I will not be leading them as I did before, but I will send an angel to lead them. So there's a further distancing between God and his people. And everything goes now through Moses. Okay, Moses to the angel to God. I mean, generally speaking, this is the path, although Moses has direct access to God. Then there is this whole conversation between Moses and God where Moses finds favor with God. He says, you found favor. right? And I, I do want you to understand, read chapter 34 and go back to Luke chapter 1 where the angel comes to Our Lady 
And in some translations it would read, Greetings, highly favored one. The problem is that in English it's a very weak rendering. I, I, I much prefer the rendering of St. Jerome, Hail full of grace, much more powerful. However, even in the weak form, Greetings, highly favored one. To understand these words, go back and read chapter 33 and 34, where you see how Moses found favor with God. And because he found favor with God, he was able to go to the tent of the meeting, he alone, and God will appear. And when he come back to people, his face shone because he was in the proximity of the presence of God for a short time. God was not constantly present. The tabernacle hasn't been built yet. He was there only when Moses came. And that was sufficient for his face to shine. And so he had to put a veil over his face. And St. Paul speaks of this. Okay? Now compare that to Our Lady who did not have God at the tent for a short period of time. She had him constantly in her. Who do you think had a greater glory? Moses, who saw God only intermittently, and the, 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 the glory faded away from his face, or the one who carried the living God in her womb? And it is in these terms that you get to understand the, react, the reaction of St. Joseph far better than the notion that he was thinking that Our Lady committed adultery with somebody else. That's called the suspicion theory. The one I favor and the one that some of the saints have followed is called the reverence theory. St. Joseph was not concerned that Our Lady had cheated on him. And the key word, if you go back and read the words of the angel to him, is do not fear to take Mary for you. Do not fear. It's unusual to say to a man who thinks that his wife cheated him, to tell him, do not fear. It may be, don't be too upset, or forgive her, or something to that effect, coming from an angel. What would he say, do not fear? Very simple answer, because St. Joseph was afraid. Why would he be afraid? That's it. We will see that later when, the, when we go through the construction of the covenant of the ark, the ark of the covenant. That box, God said, you will carry it. The Levites will, will be the only one carrying it. And only by the poles. Not, none of them is allowed to touch it. You can't touch the ark. You only can carry it by the poles. You touch it, zap, you're dead. So he understood, he put two and two together. This was a box containing a symbol of God. Here is the woman who actually carries the living God. Well, if you touch the box and you're dead, what would happen here? The reverence theory is far more powerful and reveals something about the depth of his uh, veneration to Mary, which is greater than anything we, th we, we, we can ever understand. So... Moses found favor with God and asked to see God face to face. And God said, you cannot see me face to face. Meaning, no, one, no man can see God in his true essence, the beatific vision, and live. We simply cannot. But I'll put you in the, in the mountain, put you in the wall, and when I'll pass, you'll see my back. It's really an anthropomorphism. God has neither face nor back. But the intent behind it is to, to, say, to, 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 to say, I'll show you a trace of my glory. You'll, you'll get to see it indirectly. That's the best you can do. God isn't being picky. He's basically telling Moses, I am doing this not because I don't want to be generous with you, but your nature as it is simply cannot withstand my glory. 
You see it, you're dead. So I'll give you as much as you can take. And Mary carried the living God in her womb. Just, just contrast those two things. So, let, let's, let's recap. The people of God commit a sin that is very much like the sin of Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve, at the national level. They broke all ten commandments in one shot. As a result, God punishes them, adds laws that were not there. For instance, they're told now, if you, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, you will not take... Uh, for wife, any of the Canaanite, Jebusite, Pesazite, any of these women, to, for you. Why? Why, is it, why did he now forbid them from doing that? On account of what? Because these women were all evil, right? And besides, you know, God is a man and he doesn't like women. Why did he forbid them now from taking any of these women for wives? Well, yes, but why now and not before? Why does he forbid them now and not before. The reason why is because on account of their weaknesses that they've just demonstrated. They just could not get out of Egypt. So guess what? You go into Canaan, you find this pretty Canaanite woman, and you marry her. Where, which way are you going to be worshipping? Her God. That's exactly what they just demonstrated. They can't control themselves. She brings them to the temple. We're back to Apis. Which way are they going to go? Go worship the God that has no name and no face? Or go have fun at the, at the other temple. So he's putting them into quarantine. You understand? They're so weak, he has to put them into quarantine. Can't do that. Can't do this. And he piled up a whole bunch of laws on top of each other. Why? Because they're weak. Because they're weak. That's why. Plan B. Strip them from the right as a priest. Force them to... Further restrictions. Doesn't forgive their sins, personal sins. Remove themselves from their presence. Because they simply cannot, they cannot abide with His presence. They are in mortal sin. God is all pure. They just can't be in His presence. It is very the same thing that God was forced to do to take Adam and Eve out of the garden. For the same reason. They just could not be left in the garden because the temptation would be so big that they would sin Again and again and again. This is the fundamental problem you have to understand. Once your moral integrity is broken, you are constantly at risk. You're constantly at risk of committing that same sin over and over again. There is a weakness that is now um, in your moral fabric, and it takes it takes fasting. Prayer, confession, the Eucharist, all the spiritual elements. Plus, in some cases, if you are out of control in what you're doing, you just cannot control it. If you're stuck on pornography, if you're stuck on alcohol, on gambling, on whatever, you need help. You need professional help. You need counseling. So you need the spiritual weapons, you need the psychological weapons, you need support from your community to be able to get out. It needs a lot of work. Guess what's going on here? Exactly the same thing. He gave them new laws, he quarantined them, and told them very severely, you do this and see what's going to happen to you. He put the fear of God in them so that they would not do it. And guess what's going on? Go back and read the book of Kings. Over and over and over and over they break his laws. Left and right and center. 
over and over and over. If you understand those things, you understand that you are constantly in danger. This is a spiritual battle. Very good book, Spiritual Combat. If you're looking for a good book, Spiritual Combat. It's a spiritual battle. You need to defend yourself. You need to protect yourself. You need to know the minefield you're walking in. So, that's what he's doing. He's staying with them, but he's in the tent outside the camp. He's outside the camp. This is highly significant. This is very significant because what do you have to do to come in the presence of the living God? But if you are in the camp, what do you have to do? Okay, but physically, physically, you're in a camp. In order to see God, what do you have to do? Out of the camp. Out of the camp, physically. You have to get out of the camp. Do you have another word for getting out of the camp? Excommunicate. You have to be excommunicated from what? In this case, what is that camp representing? The old covenant. You have to be thrown out of the old covenant to be able to get into the new covenant. And Jesus said it almost explicitly in John chapter 6. Amen, amen. I say to you, Amen, amen. I mean, I mean, I believe it. I mean, I swear, I take an oath. This is the power. This is an oath taking when he says, Amen, amen. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's the part with which they didn't have the biggest problem eating the flesh. The part they had the biggest problem with was the second and drink his blood. The covenant with Noah forbade what? Eating the animal with his blood. That's a universal covenant applying to all of humanity. That same thing was repeated by Moses. You shall not eat the flesh with the blood in it. What is Jesus asking them to do? Break the covenant. He's explicitly asking them to break the covenant. Once they break the covenant, what happens to them? They're excommunicated. They're taken out of the camp. And only then can they enter the new camp. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb is never a curse, but a blessing. But it requires faith to see it. And John is so clear when he says, when the Jew says, discussing with Pilate, says, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be upon our heads. They're making a note saying, if we're wrong, we will be cursed by his blood. Which led some to say that the Jews were cursed. Which the church vehemently denies. Why? Because this is exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted his blood upon their heads. Because when his blood is upon their heads, what happens to them? They're blessed. You understand? Yeah. This is therefore, just hold on a second please. This is a preparation therefore for the new covenant. Everything here is preparing them to see with the eyes of faith. When I see Jesus, understand what this was all about. To understand what this was all about. And so, Moses found favor with God. 
And as a result, he has a personal glory. But guess what now? He has to carry these people. He has to carry them all the way through the Holy Land. And we'll see in the book of Numbers how that goes when we come to the book of Numbers after we're done Exodus. Because next week we're going to revert and go back and look at the tabernacle in detail and why God spent so much time explaining to Moses how you're going to build it. Right? Question. That's a very good question. Uh, whether the Holocaust is a sign of God's wrath upon the Jews. Um, I don't think so. In fact, if you're really interested by that, I do suggest you, you read the writings of St. Uh, Benedicta of the Cross, better known as St. Edith Stein. Uh, Edith Stein was a, a Jewish uh, philosopher, studied anthropology, and one day, coming from a very pious and devout uh, Jewish family, and one day she read the writings, she read the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. She sat down, found that book at a friend, picked it up, read it in one sitting, put the book down and said, this is the truth. And converted, became a Carmelite nun, which was very hard for her mother to accept. And she was in the Netherlands and was rounded up and taken to Auschwitz where she died. And you see how she sees actually the death of the Jews as being united with the suffering of Christ on the cross. I don't think it is a question of um, God's wrath on the Jews. I think it is mostly a way of salvation. The whole war was punishment. That's clear from Fatima. God will punish the world with another war. Right? Uh, and many people died. So if you put it in the context of the Second World War, um, you know that there are six million people who died at the hands of the Nazis. But there are uh, about um, 40 million who died at the hands of Stalin. And about 120 million who died at the hand of Mao Zedong. The, the, the biggest number of people who died in the Second World War are the Chinese in China. It's, it's uh, un, un, unbelievable how many died. So... Um, the war are a wrath, this is a sign of God punishing the world, you know, and, and cleaning up the house when the world decides to block his church. Eventually he just cleans, cleans house. That's what he does. So I, I'm not convinced, I don't think there's any compelling evidence to say that the sacrifice of the Jews were actually uh, God's wrath against them. Uh, no more so than today, um, we can say with compelling evidence that the death of the Iraqi Christians is God's wrath against them or any of that. It, I think um, it, it, it is very difficult to make these, these statements with complete accuracy. What we can say is war in general is God's punishment against humanity, and the good and the bad suffer together. The difference is that the good for eternal salvation and glory, and the bad for hell. So some in those camps may have found um, heaven, and others did not. That's why I don't think I can make that sweeping judgment. Any other question? No, 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 not even white lies. Hold on. If you're lying because you prepared a surprise for your wife, and you're telling her, I'm taking you to a restaurant for the two of us, and when you get there, all her friends are there for a surprise, that is not evil. The intent here is love and charity meaning that her joy would be lessened had you not done that. Okay. You understand? Yeah. yeah.
Let's be careful. That's what we call them white lies. The whole intent is that we're doing it for the good of, of the person, not to take anything away from her. And there is no moral consequence to her life or her salvation. If anything, her joy is increased. Yes. Precisely. You cannot sin. When, when what you're doing, when the mean is evil, right? That's why the end doesn't justify the mean. Because the mean, if the mean is evil, you can't use an evil mean to get to a good end. Never. Right? But in this case, the mean is very good. All right? Yes. It, this refers to a, um, a test that we, we put to a woman to determine whether she is uh, committing the sin of harlotry. You make her drink bitter water w- sprinkled with the dust from the sacrifice of the temple, and she's not hurt, bitter, poisonous, then you know she, she's, uh, she's pure. She's, she's saying the truth. And if she's hurt, then she was lying. So it's effectively a test put to uh, the harlot. Oftentimes, Israel is portrayed as the harlot. And this way, Moses is trying to figure out who committed the sin and who didn't. Because those who did would be harmed by that water, and who didn't would not be harmed by it. That's the meaning of that. Okay? Right, right, exactly. This is anthropomorphism. It's a way for us to speak with God when we say, you know, don't, don't do this evil. Um, essentially, um, in, in the eyes of Moses, and in our eyes, the immediate action uh, would be considered evil. And therefore, he speaks of it the way he sees it, which indicates that God uh, expects us to, in, to intercede with our language and our understanding and not shy away from it. Um, it does not imply, therefore, that what Moses is saying is an accurate re- depiction and representation of God's action, nature, essence, etc. It is how he's saying it. Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, have you been here? He would not have died. Right? What? That's not necessarily the case. Jesus may have been there, and he would have allowed Lazarus to die. But it was her understanding, and Jesus didn't rebuke her for it. Right? So even sometimes our understanding of what God is doing may be wrong, but it doesn't take away from power of intercession, because he expects us to intercede for others. Right? Yeah. So it's an anthropomorphic language. We're making God speak as if he's a human, but he's not, obviously. But that's the only way we can interact with them, and God put up with it. So for instance... Oftentimes, uh, my daughter says, or my kids say, can we watch this? I say, no. An immediate answer, oh, Dad, you're so mean. Okay, but I, I'm not going to punish them or think that they are lacking, you know. Or when they're upset with me because I told them, they're really upset with me. I just put up with it. Right? That's, their view of me is very different from what the reality is. But when they're older, they'll understand. That's okay. So this is the sort of thing that is happening here. Yeah. Yes. Oh, very good question. See, I was trying to avoid all of these. Because <laughs> I knew how, this, how long this is. Did, did Moses disrespect God when he broke the Ten Commandments? No, he didn't. It's an, old, uh, uh, it's an old custom where breaking the tablets, that expression is known to indicate that somebody broke the covenant. So physically, he was showing the people what they did. You broke the, co- the covenant. Here it is. I'm showing it to you. That's what he did. Now, there is another mystical interpretation through this, which is that the, co- the, the tablets were written front and back, by the way. Front and back. They always represented written only one side. The tablets were written on both sides. Mm-hmm. On stones, because God wanted to show us how hard our heart is. He wrote on stone, because this is how hard our heart is. So when breaking the, the, the tablets also meant breaking our hearts. God sometimes have, has to break our heart before we listen. Yes. 
Oh, very good question. Now, that, see, this is the old dispensation. God put so many intermediaries between him and us. Right? Here, St. John begins his gospel. The word was with us, and we have seen him. That he, this is exactly his intention is to tell us, all these intermediaries are gone now. You can speak to God face to face. The Holy of Holies is lifted and is open. Therefore, you can go straight to Jesus and pray to God directly. You understand? You can go pray to God directly. Right? You can. Now, God, every time He wishes to give you a grace, will go through your guardian angel. Yeah? Okay? You can. Now, it'd be better to sort of um, give, um, be, be, heed God's uh, gift to you, your guardian angel, and go through your guardian angel. But nothing, nothing prevents you from praying straight out to God. And in fact, we do in the Mass. The Mass does not use angels and intermediaries. Right? Although, during the consecration in the Latin rite, in the old liturgy, let your angel take these gifts to your... Right? So the angels are still emissaries, but the priest is talking to God directly. Whereas in the old covenant, he had to go through an angel, an angel through God. Yeah? Uh, very good. So, uh, I'll just say it in this way. Um, God allows evil in the world because he will be glorified through it. The problem we have is we think that the primary thing God wants to do is save us because we're self-centered. The primary thing that God wants to do is show forth his glory. God will be glorified because it is owed to him. It is justice. And through his glory, we're saved. That's how it works. Right? So God, when we are at the end of time and we see this whole canvas put together, we will rejoice exceedingly in the work of God. That's what is going to happen. So therefore, the reason why God allows evil in the world will not be revealed to the damned. They will not be given to understand. Only to the justified. Only in heaven will we understand. This is part of the gift that God gives us. The gift of complete understanding. Not here. Up there. True. Sometimes God will use that as a method. But I don't think we can generalize this and apply it to everybody. Some people are allowed to sin and they go to hell. Not everybody has this constant care and grace of God bestowed upon them. So I don't think we can generalize and say this is how God acts with everyone. I, I, I usually shy away from generalization and say this is how God is going to do I don't know how God is going to do I'm not God. But what I can tell you is that sometimes he will do that. Other times he won't. Look at Judas. But look at Judas. He was his disciple. Mary loved Judas. Probably she prayed for him more than all the other guys put together. When Judas decided to hang himself God didn't appear to him and told him, stop. So therefore, it is not true that God allows us to sin in all cases that he can come and teach us something. This is a grace that he gives us. He gives some, not others. We have to accept that, precisely. But even her ability to love much is a grace given to her, not to others. Yeah, you have to simply accept the fact, even though God loves us all, God wants all of us saved, he just doesn't love us all the same way or to the same degree. It's his complete and his right. He's the creator. That's what we have to accept. And it's really hard. 
It's hard. It provokes rebellion in us. Not, not, no, that's not true. No. Some people have way more graces than others. Everybody has enough graces to be saved. I'll repeat it again. God is not going to be unjust. No one can stand before God and say, you didn't give me enough graces, that's why I'm lost. No one will be able to make that excuse. Nobody. You understand? That's a baseline. Nobody can stand for his personal judgment before God and say, it's your fault I'm going to hell. You didn't give me enough graces, that's why I'm going to hell. God would be unjust. His death on the cross would be meaningless. The devil would have won if one soul can go to hell because God did not give that soul sufficient graces to be saved. You understand that? His mercy would have failed. Yes? Okay. Having said that, it is not true that he gives all the same amount of graces in the same degree with the same intensity. That's not true. That is proven over and over and over again. St. Padre Pio is an example. St. Teresa Little Child Jesus is an example. St. Anthony of Padua. St. Anthony of Padua was canonized in 25 days. When he died, 25 days later, he was made a saint. St. Anthony of Padua. Why? Was he greater than St. Francis? I don't know. But that's how it is. Okay, go figure, right? So the point is, God does not love all equally, and it is his prerogative and his right. And we're creatures. We're not... God. We just have to accept that He loves us to the degree He does. And honestly, a really humble and contrite soul, and a soul who really loves God, doesn't think about, how come God loves others more than He loves me? That soul would say, let God love everybody else more than me. I am just happy He loves me. And that's the right response. That's the right response. Yeah? Yes, because every grace that was given was given from the cross. The cross spans time, forward and backward. The fact that, uh, that, the fact that Abraham received graces was from the cross. Joseph received graces from the cross. The idea is that God said, look, you see that store of graces? I'm going to purchase it. I'm going to buy it. Right? I put my name in it. I swear I will buy it. That's what he told Abraham. By my name, I will make this happen. I swear I'm going to buy that store. Now that I gave you my word, put these things on my tab. I'll pay for them. That's why. Every grace we receive comes from the cross. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Oh, sanctifying grace? Yeah. Sanctifying grace is the grace God wished to bestow upon us for the purpose of sanctification. It is the grace that He gives you personally to make you a saint. And it is a grace whose effects cannot be given to others. They're non-transferable. So whatever glory you gain here on earth is non-transferable. And it is all due to sanctifying grace. The grace that makes you a saint. Given to everyone, because without it we can't make it to heaven. All of us receive sanctifying grace through um, the works of the church, through our prayers, through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in you, through the spurring of your guardian angel, all these graces come into you and you have to respond to them. And the way you respond to them and the way they bear fruit is if you actually grow in the virtues. The fruit of sanctifying grace is growth in virtue. 
and you can see the, the for instance, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, let's see, fear of the Lord, piety, uh, fear of the Lord, piety, yeah, fear of the Lord, piety, and courage. You need these three first. Fear of the Lord to know that God is serious. God is holy. God is not going to be messed around with. And you better listen to what he says. Piety. Piety is the virtue which essentially says you're going to give God his due. That's all. So his due, praying, coming to church, doing what you must do to acknowledge him as your Lord. That's piety. Courage. Courage is the gift of the Holy Spirit to allow you to do things which are difficult. Piety, fear of the Lord, courage. Then, knowledge, wisdom, counsel, and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, counsel, understanding. Or knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and counsel. Knowledge is just to know stuff. I'm simplifying. Understanding is to put them together in such a way that they make sense and right sense. Hmm? Wisdom is a moral virtue that allows you to put those two together, knowledge and understanding, and derive what must be done. Hmm? And counsel is being able to take this stuff and counsel others. You see how they all work? These are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, 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 no. The question is, was Mary given this at conception? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. If that's what your question was, at conception, Mary, when she was conceived, not born, remember, people confuse. They think immaculate conception has something to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It has something to do with Mary. The immaculate conception is the conception of Our Lady in the womb of her mother. When she was conceived... She was conceived without original sin. So, effectively, God, at the moment of conception, stopped the effect of original sin and allowed His graces to flow into her soul. And the way He does it is that because of the cross. He said, I'm, I'm going to be paid for this. I'm just doing it now, but don't worry. I'll pay for it. Right? And from the moment of her conception, she had all the virtues to an eminent degree. That's when she was born, she had all the virtues to an eminent degree. Okay? When she passed away, Mary had more, um, her, her glory, the glory of Our Lady, the culmination of all her works, the glory of Our Lady is greater than the glory of all the saints and all the angels combined. Okay? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.